Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. The Crisis Next Door. A weekly report on the biggest conflicts around the world. With host Jason Brooks. Thanks for listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks. Violent clashes are increasing between protesters and police in Hong Kong. The city's airport had been shut down by demonstrators. And there are reports that China's military is massing outside of Hong Kong, awaiting orders from Beijing. Joining the crisis next door to talk about this powder keg is Ankit Panda, senior editor at The Diplomat, focusing on security, geopolitics, and economics in the Asia-Pacific region, and an award-winning writer, published in The New York Times, Foreign Affairs, Politico, and War on the Rocks. Ankit, thank you for joining The Crisis Next Door. Thanks so much for having me. There are numerous reports that the Chinese military is massing on the outskirts of Hong Kong, with satellite photos shared on Twitter indicating a buildup of military vehicles parked at the Shenzhen Bay Sports Center on the other side of Hong Kong Harbor. The big question at the moment is what is China's red line for Hong Kong's protesters? What's it going to take to send in the PLA? Sure. So I think uh, that's certainly a concern that's been growing among international observers. Uh, so the PLA does have a garrison within Hong Kong itself of about 6,000 troops. The forces that are amassing outside in uh, Shenzhen, the largest uh, Chinese city next to Hong Kong, uh, they've amassed at a stadium. Uh, these are units of the People's Armed Police, which are a paramilitary force of about 1.5 million created in 1982 to deal specifically with riots and internal unrest. Uh, I think the PLA's red line is starting to become clear. We're, we're already seeing official language begin to harden. The protesters have been called terrorists, which I think is a very concerning sign because China treats terrorism as a problem to be dealt with by any means necessary uh, internally. And they certainly see Hong Kong as an internal issue. I would say that the widespread eruption of violence being committed by protesters in a undeniable manner would be an important red line being crossed. We haven't gotten there yet. Uh, there were some distressing signs, uh, signals that we saw from the airport occupation that just uh, ended up concluding a few days ago, uh, signs of protesters beating riot cops who'd actually instigated the violence uh, with their own batons, the possibility of a riot uh, cop, you know, drawing a gun uh, within the airport. So the violence hasn't quite yet broken out. The protesters are incredibly well organized, well disciplined. I think they recognize that this is about sustaining um, the attention that they're receiving from the world for their peaceful protests, keeping up their numbers, keeping up their stamina. Uh, but yes, I think I think China is trying to send every message that it is deadly serious about the possibility of cracking down with force. Uh, you know, it's been very interesting that they've made it so apparent that the PLA is massing and that the People's Armed Police is massing in Shenzhen. We've seen satellite images. We've seen even CNN has gotten video footage from within the stadium. Uh, so they really want the world and Hong Kong to know that this is a possibility, hopefully, you know, with, with the purpose of having the protests simply quell themselves without having to go in. How much do you think Tiananmen Square is a factor in this for Xi Jinping and other Chinese leaders? 
Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, uh, you know, I'll just say I was I was in Singapore in June at the Shangri-La Dialogue and uh, the Chinese defense minister was there and he was speaking to uh, a group of us. So this is a dialogue that takes place every year that brings um, international security experts uh, together in Singapore to listen to perspectives from around the region. And this year, for the first time in a while, the Chinese has, had sent their defense minister. And of course, uh, this was taking place in early June, so it was very close to the 30-year anniversary of, uh, of Tiananmen. And uh, he got a question from one of the audience members about about the legacy of Tiananmen, and he was entirely unapologetic. And I think, uh, you know, we just saw China release a white paper on its national defense in which they very clearly state that the People's Liberation Army has a role in international um, internal stability. And what I'll add is that, uh, you know, we look at China and we see the world's second largest economy, largest population, um, and we, I think, tend to assume that this must be a very self-confident um, government, uh, that the government doesn't, you know, think that it's necessarily on the on the brink of collapse. But I'd say that's actually a very, um, I'd say that'd be a wrong assessment of the Chinese leadership uh, for years, uh, really going back even to Deng Xiaoping and certainly to Mao. Uh, the Chinese leadership has felt itself under siege uh, internally, externally, and really sees the possibility of itself being removed from power as something to worry about day to day. A lot of the Chinese official rhetoric has you know, brought up the idea of a foreign hand driving these protests. There's conspiracy theories about, you know, American intelligence driving these operations, which are obviously completely false, but it's part of the internal narrative. So for Xi, uh, who is a student of the collapse of the Soviet Union, um, the thing that is worrying about something like what's happening in Hong Kong is that it might be the start of a domino effect. Um, Hong Kong is not a hermetically sealed off information environment for the rest of China. So uh, Chinese citizens on the mainland don't have a lot of sympathy for what's happening in Hong Kong. They see Hong Kongers as effectively foreigners in a way. But that's not true for everyone. Uh, if they see protests for rights and liberal democracy in Hong Kong, there is a concern that this could spread to other parts of the country. And the PLA just actually had to repress protests earlier this summer in a city called uh, Wukhan, for example, internally, although those protests were taking place for different reasons, not necessarily political rights. Uh, but I think that is very much a concern for the leadership, that this, that this could be the start of a domino effect that ultimately leads to the collapse of the Communist Party in China. You mentioned the mainlander's lack of support for the Hong Kong protesters. How key is that sentiment for Beijing right now when it comes to making a call on Hong Kong? So it depends. I mean, nationalism is always a bit of a um, it, it's a force that's very difficult to control. We certainly see that in China's foreign relations, um, where uh, online sort of nationalist sentiment uh, ends up sort of boxing the Communist Party into a certain course of action. Uh, with regard to Hong Kong, I think if there were to be a a crackdown, uh, God forbid, uh, it's it's difficult to say how mainlanders would react. At the end of the day, Hong Kongers uh, are are Chinese, are are ethnically Chinese, and I think many of those images, if they were to reach the mainland, of course, the censorship regime is quite effective and would be able to stem the flow of information out from Hong Kong if there was any sort of crackdown like that uh, into, into mainland China. I mean, I mean, uh, a global headlines newspapers would be flooded with uh, images of any any crackdown. Uh, that that still remains less of a concern. But um, I think I think the Chinese leadership isn't necessarily considering the sentiment of mainlanders in uh, in deciding what course to take in Hong Kong. I think uh, rather the international community's response, and in particular the United States' response, I think is a uh, really important driver for their decision-making. Uh, you mentioned the United States. President Trump has been fairly quiet on the protest, at least over the first several weeks, but now he's tweeting about the crisis. And 
His one tweet said that if President Xi would meet directly and personally with the protesters, there would be a happy and enlightened ending to the Hong Kong problem, and he has no doubt about that. And the president also warned China that it must respond humanely if it wants to strike a trade deal with the U.S. What are the importance of President Trump's comments on Hong Kong? How does that play with Beijing? Yeah, so... You know, to begin with the first comment about meeting with the leaders, I mean, this is largely a leaderless moment. There are a few figures that are notable, uh, Joshua Wong being one of them, the very young activist who made a name for himself during the 2014 Umbrella Movement. Um, But, you know, the idea of Xi Jinping meeting with any Hong Konger uh, to uh, determine this uh, is, is is completely ludicrous, and I, I suspect will be, frankly, uh, something that will cause quite a bit of anger in Beijing, which sees this as an internal issue, uh, similar to the idea of Trump actually proposing a meeting between him and Xi to discuss the issue of Hong Kong. For China, Hong Kong is strictly an internal issue. Uh, they have been very clear about that. They've uh, told the United Kingdom, for example, the former uh, colonial master of Hong Kong until the 1997 handover, that there's no role f- uh, there's no role for them to play here either. So I think that is out of the question. Uh, what's what's more concerning to me, and I think this is really one of the lowest points of the Trump presidency when it comes to foreign policy, is uh, is comments that we've heard from the president and his advisors that, you know, what, what is happening in Hong Kong are, quote, riots, which I think feeds into the Chinese mainland narrative about this, uh, that it is an internal matter uh, that China is free to deal with however it wants. Um, of course, I'm not saying that we should suggest that Hong Kong be independent, but certainly I think standing up for liberal democracy in Hong Kong is, is deeply American and something that any administration should prioritize. This administration, of course, I think has a very different relationship to the promotion of those liberal democratic values abroad. Uh, So if there is a crackdown in Hong Kong and we see that happen, I I do think that uh, in time we will come to appreciate the the role of our president in enabling that. Uh, A lot of these comments, I think, could be interpreted in Beijing as a green line. And then there's the other risk, which is that a crackdown happens in the administration um, might not have seen it coming um, and ends up overreacting to what China ends up doing. And we, you know, that that opens up a whole nother can of worms. So uh, I think I think all of this is not necessarily positive for the resolution of this dispute. Uh, the protesters, I think um, the danger now with the protests is that they are suffering from what a lot of protest movements do, which is they initially start off with a very specific goal, which in this case was killing the extradition bill, um, which remains uh, off the table. It's not completely removed. Um, but now they've sort of grown into a broader protest about the future of Hong Kong as a political region within China. Uh, and so they'll go, uh, the goals have become more diffuse, and um, that makes it more likely that the protests uh, aren't, aren't necessarily going to starve themselves of oxygen anytime soon. Do you think that President Trump's main focus with Hong Kong is using it as a bargaining chip with China in the two countries' trade dispute? I think we're starting to see some signs of that. And that's that's always been a major concern, too. I mean, the U.S.-China relationship uh, before the Trump administration had had obviously a range of problems in the in the area of security. You had the South China Sea, the Taiwan Strait, uh, cooperation on the Korean Peninsula, cybersecurity. All of these issues were handled on a separate track from the economic relationship. Uh, the U.S. Trade Representative's Office, even under the Obama administration, had misgivings about Chinese trade practices. Under the Trump administration, the gloves have come off, and all of these issues are commingled into a single basket. So. 
sure, Hong Kong can be a bargaining chip. Taiwan can be a bargaining chip. And of course, all of this bodes very poorly for the people of Hong Kong and Taiwan who might find themselves simply traded off for a massive purchase by China of American soybeans or farm products. Um, so I think I think that makes it rather difficult for the United States to uh, treat Hong Kong or Taiwan as a priority. And on the other hand, I think it does actually give China an advantage uh, in, in the ongoing trade war dynamics with the United States and the negotiations. You mentioned the fact that the protesters have largely been leaderless in regards to having a real strong leader for the protest movement. How big of a factor is that for Beijing and in where this protest movement goes, where the advantages and the disadvantages of not having a, a strong leadership core for this movement? Um, I think I think for Beijing, it's it's sort of um, ancillary to how they how they handle this. Um, I think I think if the if the protests did have a uh, a single well defined person um, that was able to set an agenda, ensure sort of parameters on on where the activity occurred, um, I think that would still make very little difference for China. I think I think they see this as a sign of a broader struggle for Hong Kong um, in general. So I think I think that's um, less relevant to uh, how the decision makers in Beijing choose to react. You're listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks, and we're talking about the Hong Kong protests with Ankit Panda, senior editor at The Diplomat, focusing on security, geopolitics, and economics in the Asia-Pacific region. China's 50-year promise of one-country, two-system rule with Hong Kong following the handover from Britain expires in 2047. Is Beijing looking to speed up the timeline? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think uh, that's what you've seen uh, really at the core of the 2014 protests and, and this year's protests with the extradition bill. Uh, you can look at, you know, the ratings by uh, independent organizations like Freedom House, uh, who've been following the regression in Hong Kong's liberal democracy over the past 10 years or so. And the score has been decreasing every year. A one country, two systems is uh, diminishing at a much quicker rate than I think Hong Kongers had hoped for. And a lot of the Hong Kongers that are protesting today are very young. They might have even grown up after the handover, um, you know, knowing that the 2047 handover was coming, but not expecting such a drastic and rapid decline in their freedoms. Um, but on the other hand, I mean, the global reaction to this, I think, has been partly conditioned by that, too, right? Because... Um, Everybody's aware of this 2047 deadline, and there's this sense that Hong Kong is living on borrowed time before it becomes fully integrated into mainland China and loses uh, everything that makes it special. So in in that sense, I think the protesters have had a difficult time convincing much of the world to actually see this struggle as something winnable. Um, it's uh, it's it, it's only going to be seen as a patch, you know. Even if even if everything had ended with uh, the tabling of the extradition bill, uh, getting that removed from the agenda, which was the initial objective that led to a march of more than a million people in early June, um, I think I think uh, there still would have been a a sense that the erosion of one of one country two systems was only a matter of time. Anka, you mentioned the release of the annual defense white paper by Beijing. It lists several goals for the military, in particular when it comes to internal security. It also lists Taiwan as its biggest security threat. How are the Hong Kong protests being received in Taiwan? What, what, what's Taiwan's view on this right now? So, I mean, the Taiwanese have been uh, quite self-confident. They've uh, offered to uh, you know, give asylum to any Hong Kong protesters that are being treated poorly by the party or have reason to fear for their lives or fear for their freedoms. Um, Taiwan um, 
uh, Taiwan's relationship with the mainland has really nosedived since 2016 when uh, Tsai Ing-wen, the Democratic Progressive Party, which is an independence-leaning party, uh, she doesn't favor independence. That would be a red line for Beijing that would probably lead to a military conflict. But, uh, you know, she's done a few things that Beijing hasn't been quite quite that happy with. For example, she refused to endorse something called the 1992 Consensus, which is sort of this esoteric thing I won't get into too much, but it's basically the understanding on which China and Taiwan both agree to coexist at, and and agree on the notion of one China. Um, so for Taiwan, uh, what's happening in Hong Kong, I think, is a is a reminder of sort of the appetite for risk that the Communist Party has today. Uh, I think I think something that'll be particularly of interest in Taiwan is uh, whether the crackdown takes place or not. Um, obviously, Hong Kong and Taiwan have two very different statuses. Hong Kong is a special administrative region. China treats Taiwan as a province, um, not a rogue province. It simply just treats Taiwan as part of the country. But Taiwan is, for all intents and purposes, an autonomous uh, country. Uh, it runs its own foreign affairs, has its own military, has diplomatic relations with uh, other countries. So maintaining that status quo across the Taiwan Strait uh, is is something that I think will will become increasingly challenging. Um, I should add, you know, I mean, the white paper did talk a lot about Taiwan, but that's always been consistent for the PLA. Um, I mean, going back decades, really, going back to the Chinese Civil War, it's really been the Communist Party against the Kuomintang who ended up founding Taiwan. And uh, now, yes, they're not in power there, but um, the the objective and the primary sort of war fighting scenario that the People's Liberation Army has trained for for decades is a conflict in the Taiwan Strait. Um, so that, I think, is is continuity more than change. And of course, I think under Xi, we've seen uh, the language about Taiwan get a lot stronger from the mainland. So that's also been a concern for uh, Taipei. Do you see a potential crackdown on Hong Kong as a direct message to Taiwan from Beijing? I think there would be something of that in the event that it happened. I don't think Beijing would. I don't think that is part of the decision making calculus, um, or at least if it is, it's it's low on the list of priorities. I think uh, China has a number of ways of sending very strong messages to Taiwan, um, everything from conducting military exercises in the Taiwan Strait. We actually just saw this very interesting exercise take place in, uh, I believe it was late July, where um, I think for the first time since the Taiwan Straits crisis in the 1990s, um, the People's Liberation Army, Navy and Air Force conducted uh, exercises on both sides of the Taiwan Strait, uh, further out from the 1990s crisis. Um, so it didn't actually rise to the headlines in most places, but uh, you know, unmistakably that sense a message. And of course, we have China's uh, massive development of military capabilities um, in the in the meantime. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I think I think the crackdown in Hong Kong, if if it were to happen, would be more about Hong Kong and Chinese internal stability rather than about sending a message to Taiwan. The Western world likes to look into the future, not so much into the past. But how critical is 20th century colonialism for Hong Kong and other parts of Asia, and how much of a hangover is there from British rule in Hong Kong? Well, I mean, that's, that's I think, the very complex relationship that the Communist Party has to, to its history um, and, and the history of modern China. Uh, which is that, uh, you know, we, China experienced a century of humiliation beginning in the uh, early, uh, in the first half of the 19th century under the Qing dynasty that lasted all the way until October 1949. Um, and we're, by the way, about to get to the 70th anniversary of October 1949 later this year. It's a big moment for China and, and the Communist Party. And uh, that century of humiliation, the party attributes it largely to um, the efforts taken undertaken by the West. Uh, we had the Opium Wars in the 1840s, where the United Kingdom um, played a major role in uh, accelerating the demise of the Qing Dynasty. Uh, so, 
I think many of these issues that we're seeing playing out today in China are the hangover of colonialism. But by that same token, uh, without without British colonialism, Hong Kong wouldn't be Hong Kong today. Uh, Hong Kong would be a part of China as any other large Chinese city. It would be a coastal port city. Geography doesn't change for Hong Kong, but it likely wouldn't be a major global financial hub. It wouldn't be a hub for uh, journalism in East Asia. It wouldn't be a hub for relative civil liberties and press freedoms. Um, All of that, I think, is a direct outcome of its colonial experience. Um, And for the party, the reason that anything can be done to Hong Kong now and after the 1997 handover, there's been very little respect for that 2047 deadline is because Hong Kong's colonial experience was always seen as a historical aberration by the Communist Party. It was something that was never supposed to have been in the first place. So why should they respect these freedoms today? So I think that's the very complex relationship that China has to history. But I mean, I think all all over Asia, we're starting to see a lot of the unfinished business of the 20th century uh, come to a head. I mean, we have this major crisis going on right now between Korea and Japan, directly a result of Japan's Korean um, colonial history on the Korean Peninsula between 1910 and 1945. Uh, in uh, South Asia, we have the Kashmir crisis, also a direct result of British colonialism. All of these crises are sort of coming to a head right now. And I think the common variable in, uh, across a lot of these cases is the retreat of uh, American uh, normative leadership and American uh, interest. Uh, the United States has really taken a very narrow, um, economically driven approach to a lot of these issues under the Trump administration. I think that's really enabling um, a lot of the um, a lot of these issues to sort of spiral out of control. Ankit, I'm going to ask you to look into your crystal ball. How do you see the Hong Kong crisis ending? There's a part of me that hopes uh, that the Hong Kong protesters um, keep up their energy. I mean, this is, you know, as long long as as long as these protests remain nonviolent i mean they're a source of inspiration uh right now i think broadly across the region uh you know i mean broadly across the world we've seen a a a surge in um, authoritarian populism uh from europe to asia and uh seeing you know 20% of hong kong roughly uh, that's the level that's participated in the protests in in some form or another although there are debates on the numbers seeing 20% of this amazing city stand up for their hard-fought liberties, I think, is is quite inspirational. Um, so one, you know, one part of me hopes that we we continue to see this energy remain and that the Communist Party doesn't crack down. But uh, you know, the more realistic part of me is is well aware of the Communist Party's threat perceptions here, um, and so I am I am very aware of the possibility that a crackdown could happen. Um, and if it did happen, um, I suspect it wouldn't be like Tiananmen. I think the Chinese government learned lessons from Tiananmen, particularly about uh, handling the protests. Uh, Tiananmen was largely carried out by uh, members of the People's Liberation Army who weren't uh, trained in riot control. Uh, they they dealt with the the peaceful student protesters there as if they were an enemy force. Uh, so the People's Armed Police um, have have had experience internally dealing with um quelling popular movements but there's no telling how how things could get uh if if they did decide to come into hong kong and managing internal perceptions i think is something that's that's uh a really a curveball here the international press would very much report on this hong kong is teeming with reporters who have full access to the internet and can get images and video out uh, as things happen uh, that's how we've primarily gotten indicators of the things that are happening in these protests uh, from everything from uh, protesters being shot in the face with um beanbag um bullets and uh, rubber bullets uh so it'd be it'd be very difficult for the party to avoid that kind of a public relations crisis uh, but then i think there's the disturbing question of 
whether that even matters in today's world, uh, to what extent would the United States administration actually end up uh, criticizing that uh, vocally? Uh, so I think those questions lead to a dark place. But yeah, I mean, my hope is that uh, the story we end up telling about this year's protests in Hong Kong is a, is a positive and inspirational one and not one that ultimately ends in tragedy. The world certainly awaits Beijing's next move. Ankit, thank you so much for joining The Crisis Next Door. Very happy to be here. Thanks for having me. We've been joined by Ankit Panda, senior editor at The Diplomat, focusing on security, geopolitics, and economics in the Asia-Pacific region. Thanks for listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks. Till next time. The Crisis Next Door with host Jason Brooks is produced weekly. If you have any thoughts for Jason, email him at tcndpodcast at kcbsradio.com. Again, that's tcndpodcast at kcbsradio.com. We really need new phones. T Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge apply. Ctmobile.com. 